0: a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever it has already been and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Tonight, uh, we're gonna look at some hard stuff. I'd say this is uh, difficult medicine, which can be confusing because what Ruby just read seems like such a sweet little poem about how everything has its place and everything has its time, and there, there's great sweetness to it. There's also a lot of difficulty to us in us hearing it. But what we're gonna talk about in our time together is the first thing, our control over our lives is really different than we assume. And the second, that God's control over our lives is really different than we assume. So, those two things, let me pray for us and we will jump into this. Jesus, we say it every week, but uh, we always come um, in need and desirous. Like, we want to see you, we want to hear from you. And that's actually because we have a true uh, apprehension of our need and our desire for you. So these are heavy words, Lord. This life is not easy. Even maybe this week hasn't been easy. We pray that in the midst of whatever is going on inside us and around us, you would come and minister to us tonight in that place. You would come and give us new words and a new way to see where we are. And you would clear up the fog that's between us and you. Um, Help us, we pray, in your name, amen. Well, my oldest brother, I'm one of four kids. I got two older brothers a little sister. My oldest brother, Matt, uh, got married a while ago. He got married young. In the first year that he and his wife were married, uh, they moved to L.A., to Hollywood. And the reason why is she was a drama major in college and kind of that quintessential wanting to kind of chase that dream and see if she could make something of herself. They lived out there six or seven years, I think, before they moved back to Atlanta, and during those six or seven years, um, we would always occasionally get these family updates about some show or movie that they had gotten into. They'd passed the audition, they'd made it in the movie or into the TV series, and we were all going to watch that particular night. So there was this one one of those instances that I remember very vividly, and it was the time that my brother passed the audition and got into an episode of Scrubs. I know for some of you, you don't know what that is. It went off the air when you were in middle school, but it was basically like a, a medical comedy sitcom kind of thing. Um, a lot of you do know what it is. You've watched it. But he... uh We get the email, it's all going around with the family. I'm like, I think I'm an intern here back in those days. And uh, this is back pre-streaming when you got it like Thursday at nine o'clock, be near a TV to watch Scrubs. So my brother had told us in this email, it was amazing, got through the audition. I was on set all day. We filmed all day. I got to see like all these celebrity stars. One of them said hey to me when he walked by. And he's describing the particular scene that he's in. So that night comes around, we all watch the show in our different little cities and towns, wherever we, we, my family scattered around, and I remember getting to the end of the show when the credits start rolling, and I'm like, oh no, I missed it. And I didn't get up to go anywhere, I was like, did I look away at the wrong moment? So I text him, and I say, hey, what scene were you in again? And he goes, oh, you know, you know that time when they're in the ER and the doctor says this, and then this happens, like, that's the scene I'm in, so... I go back and like rewatch the episode and still, even knowing all the cues of the scene he was in, I'm like, I still am not seeing you in this. Where are you? And he goes, well, you see like down the hallway behind the two doctors that are talking, the guy pushing the cart away from the screen, that's my back. (laughs) I was like, dude, the next time you tell me you're in an episode of Scrubs, why don't you start with that rather than us all thinking, this is your big moment. And you've made it from my brother's point of view it makes sense why he was so excited and emailed all of us and said I'm in an episode of Scrubs because from his vantage point he was he spent a whole day on set they're filming the show putting all the scenes together he's rubbing shoulders with the stars of the show but in reality I wouldn't say he was in an episode of Scrubs. I don't think anybody would say he was in an episode of Scrubs. The reason I thought of this story when we were in this passage is that I, he and we and you all have a tendency to think of ourselves as central characters, even in our own stories, when at best we're extras. We don't have a starring role, even in our own stories and in our own lives. And that pushes really, really hard against our deepest assumption about ourselves and about our lives. Because our deepest assumption about our lives is it's my story and my life and my summer plans and my dreams and goals and ambitions, right? It's a very me-centric world. But that doesn't square with reality. Um, I've quoted him before because I love this guy. David Foster Wallace, famous philosopher, not a believer, was an atheist. He wrote this because he recognized the same thing that I'm telling you, that the teacher's telling you in Ecclesiastes 3, and that I saw on that story about my brother. He writes this. A huge percentage of the stuff that I tend to be automatically certain of is, it turns out, totally diluted. Diluted. Here's one example of the other utter wrongness of something or delusion that I tend to be automatically assured of. Here's his example. Everything in my own immediate experience conveniently supports my belief that I'm the absolute center of the universe. The realest, most vivid, most important person in existence. And then he invites you to think about it, too. He says, think about it. There's no experience that you've had that you were not the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is right there in front of you, or behind you, or to the left of you, or to the right of you. It's happening on your TV, your monitor, or whatever. Other people's thoughts, or really their experiences, their perceptions of reality, have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent, and real, he says, you get the idea. The world out there always has to be perceived and interpreted through my eyes and your eyes, and that's how we end up at the center of it. That's how my brother ends up saying, I am in an episode of Scrubs, when a lot of other people wouldn't say, maybe not. The teacher in Ecclesiastes 3 is softly saying, I think, the same thing. He's saying, i With a motivation of help, he's saying, you're not Romeo, you're not Juliet, and you're certainly not Shakespeare. He says as much uh, right off the bat, verse 1 and 2 of this uh, poetic chapter, he says, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. And then in the beginning of verse two, he says, there is a time appointed to be born and a time appointed to die. And it is not by accident that he begins his long poetic list of things that we're not in control of. It's no accident that he begins with the two most pivotal, critical, important details of your existence and of your story, which is the beginning, our entrance into the world through our birth and the end, our exit from the world through our death. He's saying those are scripted details. They're scheduled details. They were appointed details. But none of us had any say, any collaboration, consultation. None of us granted any permission or signed a waiver. It just happened. All of those circumstances set by another. So, in other words, there's a place and a plot for every scene in our stories a time to be born, a time to die. But we weren't consulted. And again, this is so contrary to our deepest assumptions. David Foster Wallace said it. My most automatic assumptions about the way the world is in this regard is wrong. I put myself and I imagine myself at the center of it all, at the control panel, at headquarters of my own story in my life. And he says and the teacher says, that's not where we are. So this is really contrary to what we most instinctively assume about our lives and that's why I think whenever interruptions to our story or our semester or our goals happen, we get really, really frustrated. The reason we get frustrated is we feel like I should be in control of these details but this thing is thwarting it. There's a threat to my control and we see that as a momentary disruption in lives where ordinarily we're in the driver's seat You know, C.S. Lewis's famous quote, his take on this, I I quote it often as well. But he says, uh, these disruptions aren't disruptions at all. He says, um, they are our life. When you add up all these disruptions and interruptions together, what it builds is actually a, a normal human being's life. The great thing, if one can is, he says, is to stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruptions of one's own or real life. The truth is of course that what one calls the interruptions are precisely one's real life. The one that God is sending day by day. Haven't you felt those annoying disruptions lately? Like a relationship that you thought she was in it more than she was or he was in it more than he was turns into a really hard conversation and a breakup. Or I don't think this is gonna work out thing. Pandemic happens in the middle of college for you, and unimaginably throws a wrench in every plan that you have. You get exposed to COVID over Christmas break, and all your plans with your buddies are canceled, and you're at home the whole time. The internship that you got was not at all what you thought it was going to be. And it didn't open doors. What it did is close doors and really just showed you now you're a senior and you have perfect clarity. You don't want to do what you've spent four years in your major doing. This is hard for UGA students to hear, too. Uh, we love to plan and strategize and uh, control. And Keller says, Tim Keller says in a book on suffering, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family, and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. Something will interrupt it, no matter how perfectly it's been written down in our planner. The teacher is saying that when we imagine our lives, and even you imagine your semester, we're not accounting for mayhem. That Allstate guy lives in our stories and he lives in our world. He's real, and we could call his name Hevel. And he says, when we do the math about our future and how our lives are supposed to unfold, we don't factor that variable in, and thus all the disappointment, thus the wondering, am I doing something wrong? Why does it feel like every time I get back on the saddle and moving in the right direction, something else comes and knocks me off? Another uh, movie, and I got to give credit to Rankin Wilburn. He's a pastor, was a pastor out in LA, and uh, is the one who connected these dots for me beautifully. His his um, argument is that Hollywood's, ver- Hollywood's version of Ecclesiastes, particularly this chapter, is the movie No Country for Old Men, that Cohen Brothers movie that won like every Oscar there was the year it came out. There's a line towards the end of the movie where two of the main characters, these old leathery washed up sheriffs are talking to each other as they reflect back over their lives. And these two guys say to each other, as they uh, describing life in this world, they say, things happen to you, they happen. They don't ask first. They don't require your permission. What you got in your life ain't nothing new. This country's hard on people, and you can't stop what's coming. It ain't waiting on you. That's vanity. That's Hevel. He's literally quoting Ecclesiastes 3. He's saying, life ain't waiting on you or me for your permission to happen to you. It's just gonna happen. And he says, we can't stop it. We can't stop what's coming at us. Because it's not asking our permission. What a beautiful and powerful and hard description of what the teacher is saying in Ecclesiastes. And it's hard, right? It sounds so different than attack the day which significantly the football team has been saying for six years and it did not help that much in the previous five years, which is significant that the basketball team says the same thing and doesn't yield the same results there. See how reality pushes back at our slogans and it says, no, it's a cute bumper sticker. It's a, it's a bad philosophy of life because it'll hurt you so bad if you believe that stuff. The teacher is validating and affirming why life goes down the way it does. And he's saying, you don't attack the day. The days attack you. Jesus said as much. Today has enough trouble of its own. Why worry about 48-hour increments when you're preoccupied with just 24 hours of trouble and hevel? sounds so different than what we're discipled in all around us. Some of us um, are getting angry right now. You're bristling. You're like a wild bronco, and some dude decides, I want to domesticate this horse. i want to tame this horse. I'm going to break this horse. It's going to yield to me, and you're like, "Uh uh-uh. I hate what this dude up here is saying. I hate what the teacher in Ecclesiastes is saying. I never even liked No Country for Old Men. I hate it all. Buck as much as you want. This teacher climbs right back on. And he keeps pulling at those reins. And he says, it behooves you to slow down, to calm down, to listen, to yield, to surrender. He's saying to us as we work down through this poem, verses 3 through 8, I'm just going to dance around it, but he says, friends, in love, he says, With very careful word choice, he says, we will live lives in which we will experience the death of things we hold very precious, and there's no getting around it. Life ain't waiting on you, and you can't stop what's coming. Friendships that you don't want to die will die or fade out. Marriages, your parents or yours that you never dreamed would fall apart will fall apart. Dreams that you see no good reason why they couldn't come true won't. Your own body and my own body will die. You'll get phone calls you never want to get. You'll see texts that are seared into your mind's eye that you can't ever unsee. This life is hard on people. We'll live through seasons where we have to tear down and uproot things that we spent years building. Could be a reputation. You've lived as best you can, you've tried to protect it, you're someone who has integrity but someone lied about you in the office place one day. They accused you of something that you can't prove you didn't do and the pressure's getting bigger and now you have to resign. You've got to uproot a business that you start or some project that you had to build up and it just fizzles. This is a life, the teacher says, when we will know prolonged seasons of mourning, weeping, and maybe we don't know why. Maybe we get angry because depression didn't ask our permission to afflict us. He says there'll even be seasons and times when hate or anger will dominate our hearts, not necessarily because we wanted it to dominate our hearts, not because we think it's okay for it to dominate our hearts, but because it just does. And then we're on the steep climb of learning how to forgive and love our enemies in all the years that it takes for that to happen. Again, Rankin-Wilburn drew out this insight. He says, just because God appoints a time for these things doesn't mean he delights in these things. We know for certain because of what else he's told us in his word, he does not delight in sickness or pain or death or injustice or oppression or a lot of the things that make this poem and that break our backs. He hates these things. Just because he allows it or appoints a time for it does not mean he favors it. More on that in a minute. But back to the poem. All this stuff happens, all this stuff happens, and you're like, good night. I could have been studying for my test, but I decided to come to RUF and this is what I hear? But here's the crazy thing. Fantastic stuff happens right alongside of this stuff, right? Look at your page. Look at all those beautiful words leaping off. Some of you have been in a long drought of friendships. You've never found that friend group. Maybe winter retreat for you is not what everybody said. It's going to be your breakthrough moment. It's when you get connected everybody. Maybe you feel like, yeah, I went, and I come to this stuff, and I go to Fresh and Fellowship, and I just feel like I'm outside the glass looking in. But then there comes a day where someone just, without being scripted, walks into your life, you hit it off, and there's a best friend that changes your life. That's the world we live in, too. You freshman fellowship or community group leaders, you bang your head against a wall, it feels like sometimes months and months and months, you pray your heart out, you try to get people to open up, you try to put the conditions there for trust and vulnerability to happen, but it doesn't and you sometimes secretly don't even want to drive over to the apartment to lead the group that you lead. And then one day, for reasons you don't know, some random person comes or some old person who's been there decides to open up and they say something that can never be unsaid and it changes the depth and the richness and the reality of that group forever. We live in a world like that too. Unscripted brilliance. Some of you, through your 20s will give up on love, and you'll think, I guess I'm called to be single. And then some random place, when you're least expecting it, God will drop someone in your life who will become your husband or your wife, or, or he will drop a supernatural contentment about the richness and the dignity and the meaningfulness of living this life, single and in community. Some of you will get to live to see a beautiful thing happen as secularism itself implodes on itself and is exposed to be the joke and the ruse that it is, but nobody thinks it is now. You'll get to live to see that day as it goes into the trash heap of all the other isms that everybody believed was gospel truth in the moment. That stuff happens too. It's the world we live in. So just to kind of summarize this first Point, we can't dodge the bitter things that life brings our way, but you also can't dodge the amazing, marvelous, life-changing, sweet things that come your way. Why is the teacher telling us these things? Why? This is just kind of a grandpa saying, son, let me tell you the way the world really is. I think there's a few reasons I can think of. There's probably more than this of why he wants to tell us this and why even your father who loves you on a Wednesday night in February wants to say this to you. The first is something that Peter says in 1 Peter 4. He doesn't want you to be surprised by the trials that you go through as if something strange were happening to you. Doesn't suffering exponentially multiply when you think it's strange and you're the only one? and maybe you're doing something really wrong and that's why this really hard thing has happened to you. Or you wonder if you're being punished or you wonder if you're cursed or you wonder if you're left out the goodness and blessings of God. And Peter says and the teacher says and God says, I don't want you to be surprised and think that something freakish is happening, something normal is happening to you in this world and life under the sun. Another reason, perhaps, so that you and I, and I really want you to hear this, so that you and I don't overestimate our ability to micromanage the details of our lives. He's pouring some water on the flames of kind of micromanaging and OCD and obsessiveness about the details of our own lives and overengineering this semester. He's pouring water on the flames of an orphan anxiety of hyper-controlling behavior. He's saying I don't want you to overestimate how much control you have of your life and therefore how much much agency and ability you have to to fix what's broken and to straighten out what's crooked. The last thing I think maybe that I could think of is um, Because when a person begins to humble themselves and embrace this as reality, that person begins to change in really big ways. It softens you. And it makes joy in present difficulties a possibility. It means you can smile in an environment under the sun. It means your faith can flourish in an environment that all your non-believing friends would look at and say, How are you a Christian with all this stuff that happens to you? Has that happened in you yet? Not the cynic who says, yeah, I know life sucks, but a healthy, humble sense of, I've listened to my father and I believe him when he says that this broken world is this way. And I'm beginning to embrace that this is normal, And I'm letting him teach me how to be happy in the midst of it. Or are you still the Bronco trying to get God off your back? Because this just, just is disrupting that delusion. This last point. Do you know who does know how to be content in an environment where they have like zero control? Not much ability or agency at all? Children. You knew that, right? Um, I mean, when you have kids, if you're around kids, you babysit a lot, you see it too. I get to see it front row every day, and it's a really brilliant and beautiful lesson right now in my life because I see four completely helpless, dependent people who don't lose any sleep at at all overnight about how tomorrow's going to go, or there are going to be two adults in my life who are for me, who protect me, who provide for me, who love me. Who will, who will provide for every significant or insignificant detail that comes up in my life. They lose zero sleep over that. Stinks growing up, doesn't it? They don't need me to share my plans with them about where money's gonna come from or what the plans for the weekend are. They just never ask about that stuff completely unconcerned because they just assume that it's all gonna turn out beautiful, that it's all gonna work out. They don't have to be told that repeatedly. But you'd be right to say, it's easy to be a kid though because their little brains can't see all the dangers and all the threats and all the, all the vulnerabilities that, that we see, right? And you'd be right, their minds just aren't aware of all the stuff that our minds are aware of as we've grown up. And I think this is why the teen years are so volatile for everybody is um, you're beginning to become aware of all these variables and factors And you're not so trusting maybe of your mom and dad's decisions of like what to do with all these variables when they make decisions. So you're like, hey, can I see the math on why you told me I have to be home at this time or why I can't go on this thing? Like, why are you telling me that? We want to be consulted on the plan, and we want to know why, and that's understandable. The teacher gets it. At a cosmic spiritual level, the teacher gets it. This is what he means when he says, verse... uh, Second second part of verse 11, he says, God has set eternity in the human heart. Yet, lest you think, what a sweet thing. Yet, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God has put eternity in your heart, but no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. In other words, you could say God's given you the cognitive ability to ask why, but not the cognitive ability to answer why. He's given you a mind and a soul and a spirit that is able to sit up at night wondering the million dollar questions of life, but hasn't given us the bandwidth to be able to answer all of those questions. Perhaps to our liking, I should say. We know enough to wonder, but not enough to answer. A lot of people say, if God would just tell me why, why did my parents have to get divorced when I was a little kid, and now I have to wonder, is that going to be the determinative event of my future too, in all my relationships? If he would just say why he allowed that to happen, or why he gave me the personality that he gave me, if you tell me the reasons why, if you would show me his math, then I'd understand why this result came out. And we think that would be great. But what we're really asking, the heart's desire in that isn't really just, um, I don't know. What it really is is like, I want to be God. I want to see the master plan of reality with all the details, and I want to call the shots. And we, look, I was thinking about this earlier. Um, you and I looking at a holy and sovereign eternal, transcendent, infinite God, finite, temporal, dust like creatures of dust like us, that gap is so infinite, it would be like your dog thinking that he can successfully understand your motivations and rationale behind everything that you do. The gap between that creature and you is so big, there's no possible way of him conceiving Why you're ordering him around the way you are or why you're doing what you're doing. Dogs just have to make a binary choice. Is this master good or bad? Are they safe or unsafe? Are they for me or against me? Friends, we are made in God's image. We're not God. And God is kind not to accommodate our desires to be God. And we're in the same position of our dog trying to contemplate the inner workings of your heart And emotions and mind. We have binary decisions to make too. Is he safe or not? Is he for you or against you? Is he good or is he bad? Is he who he says he is? Or is he an abuser? The way that the Bible talks about this hard stuff of basically God is absolutely sovereign and in control of every detail, I mean, I'm not making it up, verse 14, the teacher says, I know that everything that God does will endure forever, nothing and nobody can add to his work, his appointed seasons, what he's ordained, and nothing can be taken from it. God does this so that people will fear him. The way that the Bible tries to resolve this tension is to not resolve the tension, The prophets in the Old Testament, even Jesus in the New, simply asserts that God is sovereign and he's good and we live under the sun where hard things happen. The teacher here, the teacher doesn't go on some side tangent and say, hey, I know you're wondering why there's got to be a time to kill and a time to lose and a time not to embrace and a time to die. God's not for these things, but let's come over here and have a theological aside, and I'm going to answer all your questions. I think it's significant that he doesn't do that, and he doesn't feel the need to do that. Could it be saying something about what kind of creatures we are and what we truly need? Instead, what he does, he permeates throughout this poem. God is good. He's a giver of gifts, He's a father who sees, He's a father who cares. He's an artist who makes everything beautiful in its time. That's the teacher's methodology. I'm not saying that those big questions, why do bad things happen to good people, are illegitimate. I didn't say that. I just said I want you to pay attention to how God answers those questions. Last fall, um, we went through the Gospel of John. I mean, fall of 2020, when we were all spaced out, everyone wearing masks, we did two large groups that fall. We went through the Gospel of John, and for some reason, my mind went back to John 9 when I was looking at this passage. John 9 is a story where Jesus encounters a blind man on the road, and the disciples are debating with themselves, "Hey, why is this guy blind? Why did these terrible details, these dark threads, get woven into his story?" And Jesus overhears him. And they, they ask him, they say, "Well, Jesus?" is this guy blind? Did this terrible thing happen to him because he sinned and he's being punished or because his parents sinned and he's cursed? You remember what Jesus says? Neither. He says this, he was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Which is that moment when God does entertain the question, why? but it's a different kind of answer than we thought. He says, why that this man might be a canvas of God's deepest power and deepest heart and deepest character and sharpest beauty. Joni Erickson taught us a woman I quoted that night in John 9, she said, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And that's what God, your father, and the teacher are encouraging you to embrace and to trust. The Bible never asks you or expects you to have to understand why all the things have happened that have happened. Simply that there is a God who is eagle-eyed and detail-oriented, who is a God of resurrection and redemption, and therefore is making all things Big and small, beautiful, in its time. We don't have time to stall out here. I'll just say it quickly and then I want to end. But he says he is making, which is a process phrase. It's an ongoing activity. All things, no detail escapes his redemption. All things beautiful. There's only one outcome, even for the dark threads in your story, for the confusing, enigmatic pieces of your life. All things made beautiful in its time. Which means now might not be the time that you see the beauty. Maybe now's not the time you see the beauty of the suffering that you're in or that that you have gone through but there will be a day in this life or in the life to come when you do look back and you say, he has done good things. He was doing something I never could have imagined in those moments. What do we do with all these things that we've talked about in the meantime? In the meantime, while God is making all things beautiful in their time, and all these different processes of ripening, what do we do? I say it every week and will say it every week. The end of the matter, the teacher says in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the end of the matter is this. Everything has been heard. Here's the conclusion, fear God and keep his commandments. This chapter is giving us a more beautiful definition of what it means to fear God. Here it is, surrender, yield. If you're the bucking bronco, and you're like, this just doesn't sit well with me, what would it look like for you to bow, to bow to the artist who is taming you and domesticating you to make you useful, that you might be together What would it look like to surrender to him, to fear him, to yield yourself to him, to trust him, to know I'm not the Romeo, I'm not the Juliet, I'm not the Shakespeare, but he's the Shakespeare. Jesus is the Romeo. And he has been so kind to let me occupy space in the same story as this God. Here's the last paragraph. This is a God who makes all things beautiful in his time, and this is a phrase that the New Testament writers and the old will pick up from this point forward, this idea of everything happens in its time or things ripen in the fullness of time. This is what Paul is talking about in Galatians 4 when he says, when the appointed time had fully come or when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, we could add born under the sun, born into heaven, to redeem those under the law, under the sun, under heaven, that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, so we are no longer slaves. We are children, and since we're children, we're heirs. Remember what I said earlier? Who is able to thrive in an environment when they're not in control? Children. What did God send Jesus, his son, into the world under the sun, under heaven, to free you to be? A child. Unless you become like this little child, you have no place in my kingdom, he says. Being a child is a place of liberation and freedom when you have a father like this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is freeing. It is liberating to be a child, even if we're in the dark on some things, even if we don't know what dad is up to or why mom said what she said. We can sleep at night. We can do the things the teacher says. We can eat. We can drink. We can be merry. We can, we can have contentment in this life because even though these unscripted and hard things happen to us, we are in your house, and we have your eyes, and we have your love. Pray that you'd help us to think more like this, more and more. Amen.